Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. Our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. We bring you weekly topics and thought-provoking guests to get you to stop, reflect and think about what it means to be a leader in a modern world. Our aim is to help you become the leader you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Today's episode is brought to you by my new book, You're a Leader, Now What? The Proven Path to High Performance Leadership. The book contains many of the great lessons that we've been learning together during the Leadership Project podcast, together with many other lessons that I've collected over my 30-year career as a leader. The book is aimed at first-time leaders, but really, there's lessons in there for everyone. It would be greatly appreciated if you could go and grab your copy on Amazon as either an ebook or a paperback, and if you could leave us an honest review on Amazon. Now, on with the show. Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honored today to be joined by someone who's had a major impact on my life and my journey as a leader. Melinda Muth is the CEO and founder of Streamwise. She is a facilitator and fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and is on the board of the Scholarships Foundation. And she'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Now, I mentioned that she's had a huge impact on my life. She was one of the ones that first opened my eyes to leadership in a program that I went into when I was with Talis, an executive leadership program where Melinda was the principal facilitator of that program. And she opened my eyes to a world that I've never been able to unsee since. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. And all of my journey as a leader started with people like Melinda and someone else I've spoken about on the show before, Joy Pitts, who was my first executive coach. So it's absolute delight to bring you Melinda today. I'm so excited about this interview and I can't wait to share her wisdom with you, our dear audience. So Melinda, please do stay, say hello to our audience. Uh, give a little bit more about your background and what did lead you to be with us here today at The Leadership Project. Hi, Mick. Uh, hello to the audience. Uh, Mick's just given you the reason why I'm here today, because to hear him tell that story and think that I made a difference in a positive way to his life and his career is why I do what I do. Um, I had a, 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 an executive career doing a number of things and kept running up against the issues of, you know, how do you motivate people? You know, why don't they do what you want them to do? Anyway, I had, uh, you know, a, a great realization myself that uh, maybe I wasn't in the job area that really suited me. So I retooled myself. I 
I did a PhD and went on the, the faculty at the Australian Graduate School of Management, and I taught all the um, courses that had to do with people skills. You know, all the things that people didn't really want to do because they were more interested in finance or marketing or whatever. Um, but I loved those things, and that uh, ended up leading me into a career in executive education and now, uh, you know, working with um, boards. And the, the thing that's happened along the way is when working with leadership teams and boards, there's these repeated patterns that you see in people's behaviors. Uh, they're not really necessarily aware of them because humans are action-oriented. We like to do stuff. Uh, so we like to get on the tools, but sometimes we we just don't realize that we won't do a very good job if if the environment we're working in doesn't um, assist us. And if the environment isn't healthy, then we really can't you know perform at our best. And so there's things that go on; they're behavioral things. I think it's what people call culture. You know, now there's a word. People have so many different meanings for it. But it's, it's the, the, the idea that behavior is a function of, of people's personalities, but also the environment that they're in. And what I like to do is try to help groups make a better environment so that everybody's performing better and they're enjoying it more on the way. So that's a little potted history of how I got to this interview with you, Mick, because uh, you know, we were working on a, a leadership program, and I was hoping that the talented people like uh, Mr. Mick Spears would come on the program and even, you know, um, go to uh, greater heights with their potential because we would uh, look at some things that um, could really be helpful to people who are leaders because really leaders are creating the environment. They're not so much on the tools anymore. Firstly, I think it's wonderful that you're living your purpose and you found that. You found that direction I went, okay, this is what I need to do. And so many people have benefited from you following that path. And then you're, you're right. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head about why is this so challenging? I mean, um, people go through these transitions in leadership into their first leadership role or when they're transitioning from from leader to more a senior leader or then into executive roles, et cetera. And it's making those shifts that is the difficult part. You, you use the terms that people are comfortable on the tools. They might be a wonderful accountant that loves spreadsheets. They might be a software engineer who likes coding. They might be a digital marketer who likes looking at algorithms and playing with algorithms, et cetera. But leadership isn't about that. Leadership is about how you relate to other people and human beings are complex. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about why you think that transition is so tricky for so many people, Melinda? Well, uh, you're right, Mick. I mean, um, human beings are complex and we are capable of the most extraordinary things. Uh, we also have some behaviors that maybe aren't so good. And we tend to forget that even though we're human beings, we're, we're still an animal, really. And we have the psychology of, of some of the animals that we share 99% of our DNA with, like chimpanzees and bonobos. And uh, some of the behaviors that are ingrained in the neurons in our brain are, are some, you know, based on some very ancient circuits. And you have to recognize that. 
and if you want to magnify the good behaviors and minimize some of the things that aren't so nice, you know, that, that's, what, that's your role uh, as a leader. So I like to think about, you know, workplaces as are they, are they a buzzy beehive where people are cooperating because the, the, the good behaviors are being, you know, magnified by the leader? Or is it more like uh, a jungle full of monkey business that because people can get up to some things that, you know, are not so nice. The way people often describe it to me is, oh, there's just too much politics at work. And I go, hmm, politics. Well, you know, when you look, when you look at the behavior of chimpanzees in a troop, um, the leaders typically use their intellect because they're very smart, just like in humans are even smarter. Uh, they also tend to use um, alliances and a bit of intimidation. Um, now, the, the 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 chimps that are are have emotional intelligence, uh, if I could use that term, or or some capacity for um, awareness and empathy of others uh, in the troop tend to be the better leaders. They they tend to last longer because they keep everybody happy. Uh, potentially, they are looking out for their safety, and they they're they're using their alliances to make sure that all the resources are are distributed uh, fairly. Now, these are the kind of things that leaders need to think about, but we tend we we tend to forget it, and so. Um, I like to think about the patterns that come from those behaviors and, and which ones to magnify and which ones to watch out for. Because when we have a gap between you know, what we say we do, because we want to promote positive behaviors, a, a gap between what we say and what we do, things don't go so well because people can see that. And the bigger the gap, the more the stress. And the more stress, well, then you get unhappy people, you start to get mistakes, you get, you know, people don't want to speak up. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole raft of things. So I decided, you know, that I would write a book and try to identify these behaviors and how to and 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 how to diagnose them because I think there's these things that people, leaders need to pay attention to that aren't aren't what they think of right at the start. As a leader, you don't have control over someone's personality. What you do have control over is the environment you create. So to focus your energy on the thing that you can control is to create that healthy environment to then foster healthy behaviours. How does that resonate as, as, uh, as a summary of that point? That is an excellent summary. You know, it's the reason I, it's the reason I wanted to study leadership because I went in it like most people do. I'm going, I want to know how to lead people so that I can get them to do what I want to do. You know, like I, I want them to change and people don't change. I don't think they change their personalities or the structure of it. They can modify their behavior if the environment encourages them to do so. So I think what you said is, is the, the role of leadership to create the environment that pulls people along, that uh, makes them want uh, to commit, that makes them uh, willing and safe to uh, admit a mistake, um, all, those, all those kinds of things. You, you know yourself, if you work for someone you trust, and you have a relationship with them and you make a mistake, 
you don't want to let that person down. So you, you would be willing to fess up to it. If you don't trust the person, you don't trust what's going to happen. You know, that that human urge to want to cover things up will take over and people won't say anything. I mean, that, that's something that I noticed in, in many environments, you know, the capacity to be able to admit that you made a mistake. You have to be very safe to be able to do that because I, I don't know any perfect humans and we all make mistakes and it's very hard to say that you did, uh, but you have to be able to um, say that to be able to review, to get better performance. I mean, if if you're a leader, you want to make this good environment, but at the end of the day, you also want people to perform. I mean, we're working in organizations that do want to achieve something. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's uh, the, the tools aren't important and getting the job done because it is. I mean, it's all in service of of uh, of doing something together, something purposeful that you know we want to achieve uh, together. Wait, so, wait. Yeah, we're touching on something really interesting here. I want to unpack a little bit, uh, Melinda, because this is about performance. It's not about having a lovey-dovey environment where everyone has coffee and tea together, had a great time, and then I went home. It is actually about producing outcomes, but it's producing outcomes through a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, there's probably, it's probably a little bit of a misunderstanding about psychological safety sometimes, where, where psychological safety, people think, oh, you, you've got to treat people nicely and calmly, etc. Whereas no, I mean, uh, we had Stephen Shedleski on the show recently, and and he speaks a lot about speak up culture and psychological safety and pointing out that part of that is having radical candor or, or at least candor, maybe radical candor uh, and Amy's work there maybe go a bit too far sometimes, but, but having the ability to be able to stick up your hand and say, I don't get this or I, I, made, a mis- I made a mistake or I don't know. Having that safety to be able to stick up, you know, sp- stick your hand up and speak your mind without fear of judgment and without fear of retribution. So having a healthy environment is not having a, a lovey-dovey environment where everyone's just best friends and isn't it wonderful. It's, it's having a healthy, productive environment based on performance. How does that sit with you? Uh, w- well said, because, you know, there's that other phrase that you hear people use all the time, the soft skills. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I have to be honest, I really don't like that phrase because it makes it sound like it's, you know, we all want to be, we, we're all going to go and hug a tree together. And, you know, the, 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 the people and culture department is going to take us off for some, you know, team building, you know, thing. And it, it is that I, I think the soft skills, they're actually the hardest skills of all to acquire because they mean we have to look at ourselves. Because for the leader, you have to look at yourself first. You have to you have to know what kind of person you are, and, and uh, you know what kind of impact you make in order to you know marry up your intent uh, with your impact. And um, people tend to want to uh, uh, look at other people and say what other people did wrong, uh, but it really starts with yourself. That's hard, um, you know. So. Uh, I think this this notion that that these skills are soft and it's all about making everything warm and fuzzy. Uh, and look, I think workplaces need to be positive, and we need to see the glass half half full. But you know, like getting performance 
uh, creates some stress. If you want to achieve something, it's not going to be easy. Think about think about athletes. They they stress their bodies to achieve performance. Now, if they go too far, they break. So I I think that the job of leadership is to understand what kind of environment, what kind of combination of support with challenge uh, will will produce a, a healthy performance, and people will uh, not necessarily be happy every minute of the day. Uh, because they're going to be working hard. Uh, they're going to be huffing and puffing. Um, but at the, at the end of it, when they achieve something together, there's going to be a great feeling about, you know, how they did it and their willingness to work with their uh, team, team members again. And I think that's a far cry from it's got to be all nicey-nicey uh, around here. I'm going to, I'll come back to the stress point in a moment. It's really important. On the soft skills, I couldn't agree with you more, right? So first of all, soft, these so-called soft skills are actually harder than your core skills. They're harder than learning how to program. They're harder than learning how to drive a spreadsheet. It's, it's hard work and you need to work on it every day, by the way. And secondly, it's not about creating a pillow environment. It's not at all, right? It's, it's about creating an environment. How about this? I'm going to share with you what I think is a healthy environment. For me, a healthy environment is where Everyone is respected, where everyone's voice is heard, where their opinions are valued, where people have purpose and meaning. They know why they're doing what they're doing, not just what they do, but why they're doing what they're doing, where they've got the psychological safety to stick up their hand and say, oops, I made a mistake, or hey, I don't understand. Can someone explain this to me? And it's about where everyone feels that they matter. And once people feel that they matter, you know what? They will matter. They'll go and knock it out of the park. You've created an environment where their natural superpowers come to fore. You're paying these people for a reason. You're paying them because they're good at what they do. Give them the environment to let them do what they do. How does that sit with you? Oh, that sits really well with me. I like, I like that description. And, and, you know, that leads me to think, um, you know, there's leaders in the environment at all levels. And uh, you know, a leader has to create an environment where where teams want to look at themselves and reflect and build up their skills uh, to be, you know, the next uh, uh, the the next leaders in in the pipeline. Because it's it's not just up to the 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 leader. Uh, the leader creates conditions, and then other people have to um, build on those conditions and and behave and behave accordingly. So, you know, the, one, one, of the, one of the things that I, I think is people expect more of the leader than they expect of themselves. I think, you know, a leader can, uh, can do a great job when everybody's, you know, everybody's committed. Um, yeah, yeah, well, well said, uh, Melinda. There, there's something that I've been playing in my head for a while and I can't think of anyone better to ask this question. There's a big drive where we, we all want authenticity in our leaders. We want a leader to turn up as their authentic self. We hear this a lot and I fully believe it. We also want an environment where we can turn up as our authentic self because quite frankly, it's exhausting to not to do so, right? It's far easier if you just turn up knowing with self-confidence that you are enough and you can, you're, you're in that team because of you 
just be you, be the best version of you and turn up as your authentic self every day. Is there a limit to that, right? So, and where I'm going with this, or, you know, people talk about cultural fit. What if someone turns up and their authentic self isn't a good match? What, what then? Well, I think there is such a thing uh, as a cultural fit. But if I, if I go back to what I was speaking about earlier, you know, everyone ha- has the capacity to modify their behavior. You know, and if it's, if it's too difficult for you to modify your behavior to get along with everyone else, uh, then I think the leader has, the, the person and the leader have, have a conversation. They need to be having a conversation. You know, I've seen lots of places where, uh, you know, we can, we, we can let that go because that person gets such uh, great results. You know, the fact that they leave a trail of dead bodies wherever they go while they're, they're getting those results, you know, means uh, uh, we should just let that go. I, I, think that's, I think that's not true. I think there have to be some standards for behavior. Some of the things that, that you were uh, describing, I, I guess the way I, I would sum it up is uh, there's a professor at Stanford. Um, he wrote a book called The No Asshole Rule. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't use that word. Go. Yeah. It was uh, what was on my mind. Video, so yeah. uh, now, we've, now we've said it out loud. That's, uh, yeah. that's and, what I'm getting at. Yeah, please go on. Yeah. yeah so the, and, and what he actually does in that book is he tries to uh, uh, put a cost on, on these people. You know, so there, there, there's, a, there's a, a human cost and there, there, there's a physical cost of the damage uh, that, that these, these people uh, make on the way. Now, they might be better suited to another kind of environment uh, because there's lots of different kinds of people in the world. And the worst thing that we do to each other is judge each other all the time as, you know, good or bad or this or that. Um, there's lots of kinds of people and they just like there's lots of kinds of flowers and plants and they, they all need different conditions to thrive and not every workplace is the same. So I, I think, uh, you know, if, if it's too hard for a person uh, to manage their behavior uh, and they, they feel like authenticity is, is suffering, maybe that's not the right place for you. But if you've, if you've got the kind of environment where you can have a straight up conversation with the leader, then, then you know, everybody can take, take a decision, uh, you know, and that, that's quite a different thing than, you know, deciding you'll just have a call and whack people if they have no yeah. job anymore. Well said. I think there's a lot there, right? So first of all, I think about Einstein. I think the quote is something like, if you, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you'll think it's stupid. So there's a different environment for everyone. Someone, you're, they're always going to fit in somewhere, right? We do want people to turn up as their authentic self, but then there's the behavioral gap that you spoke about before that if those behaviors that you reward uh, are not a good alignment, then we've got a problem, right? So in fact, if you turn a blind eye to poor behavior because someone's a high performer or whatever you want to call it, it actually then encourages that behavior. And secondly, it demoralizes others because people see it and go, oh, okay, that's the kind of behavior that's tolerated here or, or worse still rewarded here. So you do need to address the behavioral gap. And it could be an awareness issue that the person is completely unaware of the impact that they're having uh, on 
the people around them. So give them the benefit of the opportunity to address it if they don't have self-awareness. But if they're turning up as their authentic self and there's a behavioral gap with the behavior expectations of the organization, then eventually it's a different conversation. How's mm-hmm. that summary? Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds right. And, and, you know, that is difficult to do because people don't want to have those conversations. They're tough. They're hard. It's easier just to sweep it under the rug. And that's what, what I see in, in, in organizations. It's, it's just too hard to have the conversation or because the place is big, there's too many different views about what the behavior meant. Uh, so we can't settle on that or, you know, we can't prove something or there might be a lawsuit or whatever. So we just don't deal with it. Uh, and and we don't have a, a, a culture that says, you know, uh, leadership and, and behavior matters because we're more focused on the, the typical things that go with performance. We have to make money here. We have to do a good job of our engineers. The bridges can't fall down, you know. And I'm not saying that's not that, that's not important, but it, it's it, I think that the intellect, the experience, the capability is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient. There's this other part. And if you pay attention to that other part, it's, it's like I, sometimes I use the metaphor. It's, it's like air quality. So if you pay attention to air quality uh, and you don't wait till, you know, the air is so dirty that you're choking. You'll, you'll manage these problems sooner and, and sooner will, will be better, I, I think. But before a lot of damage is done, yeah, that, that's a, and, and these, and they can be challenging conversations, but these challenging conversations get increasingly difficult with time, right? So if you let it go too long, it becomes so much more difficult than if you had have addressed it at, uh, very early. Particularly, like I said, it, it can be just an awareness issue that they've got a blind spot. They have no idea that the, the language that they're using, the positioning that they're doing is having a negative impact on those around them. They may have no idea. And if you give them the early notice, they can actually do something about it. If they can't do something about it, then yeah, eventually it's a different conversation. I promise to come back to stress and in the workings that you've shared with me, I saw a wonderful diagram about stress and, and about a tipping point, right? So, so in an environment without stress, performance is actually quite low. Uh, a little bit of stress increases performance, but then there's a tipping point where it goes too far. Can you describe a little bit more about what you mean in that environment? Well, I think that the job of the leader is to be testing the environment all the time. Uh, uh, for the balance of, of support uh, versus challenge. And I'd, I'd love to say that there's a diagram out there or a set of measures that could tell you, oh, you're now about to approach the tipping point. Uh, but there isn't. <laughs> because every group of people uh, is different. And of course, different organizations and different sectors have, have different pressures. And, and this is where uh, the awareness, which you were mentioning earlier, is so important for the leader to to be aware of where where people are uh, to have conver- to have conversations uh, with with people you know one on one in groups to be always you know testing testing the water for you know what's the level of discomfort uh, because 
if nobody's saying anything about being uncomfortable or unhappy, that's a signal. So it's either poor performance or something's repressed. And if people are complaining a lot, people are leaving, you know, uh, there's high uh, unexplained departures, all that, there's signals. So you have to be, you know, watching those signals. When people start to leave, uh, that's that's always a huge, you know, red flag. But there's lots of things to look for. And I I think this is where people misunderstand uh, the role uh, of the leader and that that earlier conversation about you're not on the tools anymore. You're taking the temperature uh, uh, of the place. You're looking for you. You you have to be a bit of a a diagnostician in order to to uh, uh, recognize how much stress is how much stress is required for performance and uh, how much is too much. And, and it's movable. It doesn't stay static. It's not, uh, it's not the same all the time. I think of all the fantastic people in the health department where I live, the New South Wales health department. What, what is it like to work in a hospital at the moment? It's like red alert all the time. Uh, how how are they taking care uh, of of their people? Because humans can only take so much stress before they break, and each person has a different has a different level. And so that's the leader's job to be testing the level. Pe- people can. Um, uh, I have another colleague. Uh, uh, you you know him, Lex Dwyer. Uh, you know. He was on the program. I got all my, my good colleague, you know, the wonderful Joy Pitts, Lex Dwyer, you know, the, the, um, the, the idea of rest and recovery. So if, if a team has been running hard, what, you know, you can be pretty sure there's, there's going to be some symptoms that you need to look out for. Then what, what, you know, what do people need to do to rest so they can go, they can go again. I mean, I'll make that athlete uh, metaphor again. You know, they train, they train, they train. If they if they get a signal that something wrong, they back off. They don't just go uh, twenty four hours a day. I mean, they, they, there seems to be this notion that humans are like machines, and you can plug them into a socket, and they're just going to keep going. I think it's really just not true. Uh, and if you're going to be your best self as a leader, you also have to um, you know understand your physical self, its impact on your emotions. And, and you have to understand that for the people that you are, are leading. So you can get an idea of, is there enough stress for us to get a good performance? Or are we about to break? That analogy about the athlete is really powerful, uh, Melinda. And have a look at the Olympic athletes, for example. And they do measure a lot. And you think about your analogy of the temperature taking the leader, taking the temperature and sensing what's going on in the environment and treating everyone and, as a different person because everyone's got different uh, stress tolerance levels, et cetera, and what, what drives them. Olympic athletes do not wake up every morning and go, right, I'm going to go out. Let's say that they're a sprinter. I'm going to run 100 meters today in 9.6 seconds. Otherwise, I'm not training hard enough. No, they don't do that. They, they have seasons. They, they, they know how to judge and peak their performance uh, so that it's, it's going at the same time. Yet somehow in the workspace, we go, right, it's 8 o'clock 
uh, on Monday morning, time to turn it on, people, and you, you're going to work all of these hours. Uh, unfortunately, I, I was going to say 40 hours, but everyone knows that's a bit of a myth these days. Um, you're going to work and you're going to work uh, at flat-out speed the, the entire time, and, and it, that is not optimal performance. In fact, that will degrade performance over time because stress is cumulative. So the things that I'm hearing here, Melinda, is, right, so without stress, you don't improve. The Olympic athletes know that too. If they don't train, they don't improve, right? So without stress, you don't improve. And great things happen just outside your comfort zone. But if you push it too far or for too long, that's when the performance will degrade or stop altogether. That's what I'm hearing there. How does that sound with you? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's about, it's that, <clears throat> that notion of goal setting. And is the goal, have you set a goal that's so high that people just, there's, there's, they don't even believe they can achieve it. Or if you set something that's tough, but people can <clears throat> believe in it. And then as you go after that goal, uh, you, you, you keep checking on, you know, whether, whether people need a, you know, they need a bit of a, a, a recovery. Yeah. I love um, that. So I love that. So, so setting a goal that's, that's tough, but believable that they'll be proud of when they do achieve it. And then rest and recovery before you go again. I, I love that. That's really good, Melinda. All right, I want to work towards the book. So I'm, I'm so excited for this. Uh, so Melinda is writing a book about workplace myths and whether they work for us or whether they work against us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I want to just start with what inspired you to write the book in the first place? I, I'm more of a talker than a writer. And I thought all these things that I've been observing, I need to put them in a form that I can, you know, continue on the mission of sharing them with other people. Um, so I, I drafted the book uh, and I'm, it's still a work in progress. I will finish it. Uh, <laughs> but I, it made me sort of codify my thinking uh, about the issues that we're talking about. And I, I wanted to put it in, in, in a form that people could could relate to because you think about the conversation we've been having, there's so many different uh, facets to it. So I decided to think about what, what are the, the key patterns that I've observed that uh, would help people diagnose, uh, you know, the stress in the environment, uh, you know, because I, we just talked about stress and performance. Well, what is it that you, what is it that you should be aware of or, or look for um, that could be some key, key indicators that there's a gap between what we're saying and what we're actually doing? I hope that makes sense. It, it does. So, and I think it's wonderful because you are so impactful to everyone that you meet and, and that you coach and, and lead and, and show your gift and your, and your wisdom. And the fact that you're going to codify it in a book that will last forever, I think is wonderful. It'll amplify that impact and, and get it into the hands of, of many more people than what you can do in, in just the, the, the very engaging one-on-one conversations that, or one-to-group one conversations that you have. Let's just pick some of them. Um, I want to start with the hero leader. What is the hero leader? The, the hero leader myth is this idea that the leader has all the answers you know, the, the, the hero leader knows everything, will do everything, will keep us safe. Our expectations of that person are so high that 
the people who are in those roles, they actually come to believe that they are indeed a hero who can do no wrong because we, we, we accord them that power because our expectations are so high. Uh, and so uh, one of the things about uh, uh, leadership is that, you know, leaders are also humans. And I'm not saying that we should let them, you know, off the hook, but I don't think that uh, setting them up as a leader and leading them down the path of, of believing that, that they never make a mistake, I don't, that, that's, that's just no good. Because when people believe that they are the hero that can make no mistake, then they don't want to admit any mistakes to those who are being led. Um, they're making up stories. Uh, nobody wants to tell them anything because they know it's not going to be received that, you know, Flattery is the only way to go. So, uh, you know, there's a there's a there's a good side to this because uh, the the leader who is the the authentic hero who who looks out for people and keeps them safe is someone to be respected and followed, even if you don't agree with everything they do. That's the positive side of it. But the dark side is if we accord all the power to that person uh, and don't remember that that they have um, a humanity just like we do and they can make mistakes, uh, you know, and we should, uh, you know, we, sh- we should tolerate some things. Um, if, if we don't, you know, go for that mode, then the, the, the leader can't uh, uh, build that environment with us, if that makes any sense. You know, it's a, it's a dark side, light side, you know, yes. We, we, we have such high expectations. I think you can see that a lot if you, you look at any, any news headlines where, you know, we're in love with people and they do one thing and then it's, oh, you know, they're no good anymore. It's a mythical belief because leadership is hard. It's hard to get it right. Think of all the things that we've been talking about today. Uh, people don't always get it right. No, we're all human. We're all make mistakes. We're all human. I, yeah. I think leaders who can admit that they're human, you know, they create the environment for all of us to admit that we're human. And therefore we can say, well, we made a mistake. We can do this better. Um, you know, people can even use that famous word. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. There's a few things uh, popping into my head here that I'd like to test with you, uh, Melinda. First of all, they can be inspirational and they can create a point of aspiration where people want to be like that, right? So there can be something that can come, the energy that comes with it, all of those things. The, the part where you said that they're the answer to every question, well, that's not a very good way to scale, right? So you, you're going to have a uh, point where that person becomes the choke point in everything and they become the limitation. They, they, be, they started as the driving force that drove the business or the team forward and then they soon became the limitating, they became the limiting factor uh, because they've, they're, they're only one person and they've only got so much capacity. And then the fall, the, the bigger the pedestal, the, the bigger the fall is going to be. I was coaching someone yesterday and obviously, you know, confidentiality, I won't share who it was, but someone that's been a high performer their entire life. And they've had the first time in their life that they haven't met their quarterly targets in their business. And they're taking it very, very, very hard, right? So um, the higher you put the pedestal up, the, the bigger the fall is going to be. Even look at Will Smith at the, the, um, the Academy Awards, right? So I, 
I have a lot of respect for him. He's had an emotional outburst. I do not agree at all with what he's done. But people are going to start judging him now because he was on a pedestal for many people and now he's done something that none of us expected, right? So, uh, yeah, there's a few things there. How, how's that summary sitting with you, the kind of the limiting factor, the inspirational factor, the limiting factor, and then the bigger the pedestal, the bigger the fall? Yeah, the bigger the pedestal, the bigger the fall. They, and the, the Will Smith story, I look at that and I think, wow. You know, people are going crazy on social media about that. And he has stood up and apologized and admitted his his error. And he's done so publicly. And then he I think he finished with, I hope the Academy uh, asks me back. So he's clearly expecting that there's going to be some kind of accountability. So what should that accountability be? I think that's the big question. Uh, because, uh, and I don't know the, you know, I don't know the answer to it for his case, but what it points out to me is if someone, if, if, if the leader makes a mistake and admits it, uh, uh, in what, in what situation should they, um, have to take full accountability and fall on their sword? And in what situation should they, they take accountability, admit their mistake and be allowed to have another go? Um, because I think we, you know, we, we, we tend to, um, let people, we let some people off the hook more than others. Uh, you know, so some, so so think about the, the, the cases of, of CEO bullying, for example. Uh, well, we got the person a coach and they said they'll do better. Um, well, gee, well, what's, you know, what's the message there? Would the same accountability be accorded to someone who was, uh, you know, at a different level uh, in, in the organization? So I think, um, you know, th- this, this idea that the hero leader uh, can make a mistake, admit a, admit a mistake, also uh, has to go hand in hand with when, with, with, with you know, with account- accountability. Um, because uh, you know, the, the hero leader who never makes a mistake never wants to go. <laughs> sometimes they do have to, sometimes they do have to go because no one is the perfect hero. Yeah, that's a nice point, uh, Melinda, and, and well shared and it's something for us all to think about there. The next one intrigued me, uh, the growth myth. Ah, oh, yes, the growth myth. Uh, well, there's this notion, uh, I think it just pervades society that Bigger is better. More is better. You know, there's no limits to anything. Everything grows forever. And I just, it, there's actually no evidence uh, for that uh, about businesses or about a lot of things because, you know, most things have a life cycle. They don't grow forever. I mean, humans get to a certain height and they don't keep growing anymore. Uh, so, I'm not saying that, you know, the good side of the growth myth is that there's more opportunity. We're doing new things. You know, we can uh, uh, give more jobs uh, to people. We can, you know, we can have more of something. But I think there's a notion about moderation. And if you look at uh, organizations who are constantly acquiring, merging, getting bigger, 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 uh, uh, they don't necessarily perform very well because 
they they get so big they're un, they're unwieldy and uh, over complex. And working in those places is uh, it's worse than monkey business. It's really a jungle. It's too too big to be. Um, well-led, if I can put it that way, even too big to be uh, well-managed. And so I think the, uh, the the good side of growth is the more opportunity, but to think about growth in a planned way to have, uh, you know, criteria and standards about what we do and and how how we grow versus just running at it for the sake uh, of of growth, and there there are plenty of of corporate examples of companies that just grew wildly because you know it's it's a a word that we worship, and and then they fell over and everyone uh, lost out. I can remember being sitting in in, in a cl- business school class myself when I did my MBA, and you know saying I think growth has limits. I, I I'm not sure that growth is always good. I, I was, you know, everyone looked at me like I had two heads <laughs> because it's, it's this notion of, of, uh, of moderation and recognizing that if you grow something, uh, it will have to um, adjust and the leadership skills will have to be uh, uh, strengthened and thought of in different ways. You, you, you know, you can see lots of entrepreneurs talking about, wow, things seem to start to break once we've got more than 25 people. Oh, and then we get past 150 people. And now it's, it's really difficult. And that's because of that, uh, that uh, uh, concept that I mentioned before about people being able to uh, retain uh, a certain number of, of relationships and knowledge of others in their head. It's about 150. Well, how many organizations do you know that people are working in that are way more than 150? And nobody ever thinks about this. It's like, oh, let's just merge this because uh, there's going to be a bigger, better return. And, and, and there's plenty of evidence that says, you know, a lot of mergers and acquisitions fail. And why do they fail? Well, culture, you know, it's those behavioral things. So why do we, why do we just worship this and think that there's no limits when Clearly, there are, you know, you can make more things, but you have to think about how will you do it? I mean, aren't we thinking about that now in terms of our planet? Mm. (laughs) I want to share two things with you, but one at a time when I listen to you here. My first question is whether we're measuring the wrong thing, right? So I've been in countless board meetings, executive reviews, et cetera, where you present your business plan and everyone asks, where's your year-on-year growth? What's your CAGA? What, you know, and it's always about the numbers, right? And how can we get bigger? How can we get bigger? How can we grow? How can we grow? How can we grow? And that becomes the fixation. The fixation becomes the CAGA. And we lose sight of the purpose and meaning of why we were doing it in the first place. So what I want to pose to you is, would growth be a healthy term if it was always how are we growing our impact? Not how are we growing our revenue, how are we growing our profit? Come back to our vision and our purpose and meaning for having this team or this organization in the first place. And are we 
growing our impact. How does that sit with you? Uh, I, I like that. I also like when, when I think about impact, uh, I, I think that that is such a, uh, a good a good way to think of it. Another another word I would use is how are we growing our value? How how, how are we growing our value? If we if we do this, will we continue to to uh, offer value and create positive impact? Uh, we you know we we will grow without creating new problems, which will in the end uh, mean that that growth was was really for naught. Because it'll it'll come back another way. We'll have to because this is what happens. People just go on the numbers. They they create some other problem, and then it costs money to fix that. We don't want to spend that. Well, if we spent that, now we have to grow some more so we can have some more uh, resources to you know fix that thing that that we did. I mean, it's it's not going anywhere. Um, it's you know that I'm not saying that numbers are important. I mean, finance is the fuel. Uh, and that is important. It's just uh, in relation to what uh, the uh, our purpose. Are we achieving our purpose? Are we making? I want to say positive impact. Are we creating value for customers, shareholders, you know, stakeholders? I, I like to take a bigger uh, a, a bigger view of it because I think that when you do that, the growth is more sustainable. I want to come back to your 150, right? And I just, I have no scientific evidence of this. I'm just going to put it out there and say that that organization of 150 people where there's a bit more cohesion, a bit more collaboration, a bit more cooperation is pro- potentially having more impact and more value than a much larger organization and certainly more impact and value per capita, right? So once you, once you grow to a certain scale, everyone in the audience is going to recognize this. The inefficiencies creep in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, it's, so growth for growth's sake is not the answer. Right? I, 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 I don't think so. And, uh, you know, it's, it's this concept of how much is enough. You know, there are people in the world who have more money than they would ever spend in 20 lifetimes. I mean, what, what, and there are other people who have nothing. I mean, what, you know, and that, that disparity, that's part of what creates problems uh, in companies, societies, you know, what, why in an organization, why should the CEO make 300 times what the frontline worker Make the CEO could make a hundred times and still be not missing anything. Yeah, yeah. I think. All right. The the other one when I read the growth myth, it was just something a personal one. Uh, I want to share with you, Melinda, and get your view on. There's also an element of different leaders for different stages of a team, and I've had firsthand experience of this. I know that I'm very good at launching new businesses, at starting new teams and going from scratch to high performance. I know I'm good then at springboarding from high performance to growth. I know I'm personally terrible at the kind of business as usual, we're just kind of operating and I would be horrendous at the downtime, right? So every, every business goes through cycles, every team goes through cycles. I would be horrible at the downturn. So I think the other thing to think on the growth 
is that you might need different leaders for different stages of that cycle. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. And it comes back to knowing yourself and knowing, you know, what you're, what you're good at. And uh, I'm like you, I like, I like uh, startup things. I like, uh, you know, figuring it out, how to get it going. I'm not so good uh, in the, in the steady, in the steady state, but you know, that's so important. The steady state where you really, you know, have impact and you're creating sustainable uh, value over time. And there, there are different sets of skills and, you know, no, no one has, no one has everything. We're all, you know, we're all our own unique mix. Yeah, exactly. All right. Very good. I want to pick one more, and then I want to give you the opportunity to pick one of your, your myths as well, which one is your favorite. But one I'd like to go is the rationality myth. Tell me more about that. That's oh, I intriguing. love the rationality myth because, I mean, we do, and I like rationality too because, I, you know, I like logic and uh, evidence and order and making pro, uh, in, in, in solving problems and, you know, getting the, the, the best uh, solution. The thing is, um, humans aren't rational. You know, if you think human behavior is rational, you're just not getting out enough. We aren't. We are emotional at our core. We are. Our decision-making uh, is, is largely based on the, the, the neurons in the part of our brain from the, the mammal era, you know. And there's, uh, oh, there's lots of evidence, you know, if you read any of Daniel Kahneman's work, you, you know that, that that's the, the part of the brain that's in charge of decision making. But we we say to people at work, uh, or, or I'll put it to you this way. If, if someone says to you, Mick, at work, you're being too emotional. But how, how do you take that? Well, I'm an emotional person. That's that's who I am. It's, yeah. it's not necessarily a compliment it's a criticism isn't it it's it's taken as a criticism but it's taken as a criticism and and i think well that just means you're human uh because we all are and that's why the subject of leadership is so important and why paying attention to all the things that we've been talking about is so important because that's that's what drives it emotion drives us and yet in the business world we, we don't want to think about that because we, we do need, you know, logical solutions to things. I mean, you don't, you know, I've been talking about building bridges. You don't build a bridge with emotion. You build it with steel. Physics. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. and I, I, yeah. I know that. Yeah. Uh, but the team of people who are figuring things out, they, they will have emotional attachments to their ideas about how to do those things. And, and to, to, to say that everything is is uh, rational and to sweep an emotion under the carpet uh, is, is to ignore uh, all of our human qualities that matter so much in doing a good job. So, you know, this, this whole thing of it always has to be rational. Uh, that's, that's mythical thinking. I mean, how many times have you seen people try to convince, persuade, or finally just beat somebody up with the facts? Um, because that's somehow going to convince them, and it just it doesn't. doesn't. I mean, it just doesn't. look look at yeah. what's happened in our world with trying to um, uh, persuade people to have a, a vaccination. You know, all the medicos they have their facts, and they want to tell their facts. And uh, no, that's being mean to medicals. I'm sorry, but you know, people want to 
you know, put all the data up. And, you know, some of that data is pretty hard to interpret. And it, it, there's a lot of emotion in, in it. You know, like, if I take this, will I die? Now, people are, we're emotional at our core. I go back to what I was saying about, you know, we share 99% of our DNA with, you know, chimps and bonobos. You know, there's a lot of animal instinct there. It's, we, we are not machines. We do not plug into a socket 24 hours a day and go and then just compute. Uh, we're, we're, it, it, it's mythical thinking. <laughs> I think politics and, and vaccines are, are a classic example of that. People that are seemingly rational people that then make emotional decisions. And the, and the fact is, is that we all make emotional decisions all day, every day, and we justify them rationally. But that takes a while for, for people to work out. A, a dear friend of mine, I'll have to be careful here, Melinda, because he, I know he listens to the show. A dear friend of mine swears that, no, he's very methodical. And if he's buying a new car, he will have spreadsheets everywhere and weighted criteria and all this kind of stuff. But from the outside, I look at him, make an emotional decision that he then justifies with that spreadsheet, not the other way around. That is a classic story because how many times have you asked somebody how they made a decision? They've got no idea how they made it because it really was gut feel. So they're backward engineering yeah, this it. rational yeah. set of, yeah. of reasons and steps that they took and it's got to yeah. do anything. All right. Now, um, to move on a little bit, there's 10 workplace myths and this is why I just can't wait to get hold of this book. I've, I've seen your outline workings and it's, it's just amazing, Melinda, and I can't wait to get my hands on this and share it with the world. Uh, we haven't got time to go through all 10. We've gone in depth in a, in a few already. Of the remaining, which is your favourite that you'd like to share with the audience? Oh, gee, you know, it's hard, uh, but I have to pick one. So uh, I'll pick the meritocracy myth. The myth that if I work hard, and I do a really good job, I will be promoted and rewarded. And in some places, that is true. But in a whole lot of places, it is not true at all. You know, it's uh, the people who get promoted seem to be those who have um, a better set of networks, alliances. Um, They use some of the other mythical behaviors like, you know, optics to create some picture of their performance that doesn't exist. I heard this story the other day, um, and I, I believe in diversity and inclusion, believe me, I do. Uh, so I, I don't want to indicate that, I mean, that is, that is really important. And, and, and that's part of what this, this is all about, uh, that you know, we want to we wanna, uh, reward the people who look like me. Um, but I heard a story about a company that's growing larger now. It's been very successful as a startup. So now it's starting to get all, it's way beyond 150. It's starting to get all the rules. So now when they interview, you know, the shortlist, uh, they've got a rule about the shortlist has to be diverse. And I absolutely accept that. The issue is that in the um, interview process, the, the, they hadn't created a good shortlist because they just pasted in people who looked diverse and those people didn't perform as well in the interview process, but they were hired anyway. Um, so the people who had the most merit uh, were not employed. 
you know, now there's a whole lot of things in the, in the, in that story. You know, there's the, 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 the meritocracy myth that the best candidate's going to get the job. Uh, there's, you know, the optics myth of we just hired them for how, how it looked. But sometimes we do that. We promote um, or reward people for just how it looks, not what it is. Um, you know, and then there's the whole whole issue of, you know, how how what, what are our uh, uh, procedures for um, or our, our, our method of determining what merit really is because that that argument is used uh all the time for you know not having uh, a woman in a position or you know someone else so there there's a lot to the meritocracy myth and uh, a, and, and that myth is a result of a lot of the the uh the ways the emotional ways that people uh approach the world and and i think it's very disheartening to people to think that they they're doing a really good job and they won't uh, be rewarded that someone else will, will uh, move ahead and they won't because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're, you know, working in a place, you, you want to be, um, you want to be rewarded. You want to have a salary, but you want to be recognized. You want to develop, um, you, you, you want to learn and you, you go in thinking, thinking that that's really the story, you, you know, a lot of places tell when you join and then no, there's you two, work hard and not going ahead. <laughs> yeah. There's two powerful things I want to reflect there, uh, Melinda. First of all, you brought up immediately the importance of relationships and that does play a huge role in here and it can be in a bad way and it can be in a good way, right? So someone that has a good network and a good set of relationships gives an indication of their emotional intelligence and that they may be an indicator of their future performance. So it can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. Like, so clearly uh, things like nepotism, no. <laughs> but uh, as someone that's got a good relationship, the ability to build relationships is actually, that's a good thing. So, so good and bad in that. The second one, I have to say at the show, we are big advocates for diversity, equity and inclusion. Where the line is here is when you are looking to recruit someone, you are, you are recruiting them on their merits, but it's not just what's written on the job description. It's about what are they bringing to the table, which includes their diversity of experience. It includes their diversity of thought. It includes whether they're going to bring something new to the table that another candidate might not have brought. What it doesn't mean is having arbitrary targets that says, okay, we need to have 50% of the applicants are women or 50% are from minority groups or whatever. So going towards arbitrary targets, no. But looking at what the person is bringing to the table, how does that sit with you? Yeah, that's, you know, that's the way I like to look at it. And, And making sure that you looked hard enough. So every candidate that you've got a diverse list and every candidate is, you know, a worthy I mean, and it's a it's a really tough one. Um, I, I try to make sure that I know all kinds of people because um, there's so many different kinds of people uh, in the world. And, pe- you know, you can't judge a book by its cover, even though we usually do that, uh, you know. But there's just there's so many wonderful people in the world from all parts of the world of all, you know, colors, shapes, sizes, uh, descriptions. Uh, and it, it would be, it would be wonderful to think that, you know, we, 
we had this, you know, great equality that we don't have. <laughs> um, the the judge book by its cover is an interesting one, and it brings up that we are all biased, but it's what we do with that bias uh, is is what's important. How we respond to that bias, if we react and and let that bias influence us, that's a problem. But uh, acknowledging that we do have some bias is a is a good way to look at that. It's also a good way to round out and say, judging a book by its cover, cannot wait to see your book. For everyone at home, there are 10 myths. So we've been through some of them, right? So the hero leader, the growth myth, the rationality myth, the meritocracy myth, the optics myth. Um, but there are others, the ones about one team, about that new rules that you, every time there's a problem, you bring a new rule into the business. The change is always good, which sometimes yes, sometimes no the urgency myth and, and the positivity myth. So I absolutely can't wait to share this. When it does come out, Melinda, we would love to have you back on the show and we will, we will also help you to get out there and promote the book and make sure that we get, in, get it into as many people's hands as we can because I, I think it's going to be wonderful for, for everyone to receive this. Because, you know, I, I told you I'm more than a, I'm going to finish it. I'm more than a... a I, more talker than a writer. So I'll be wanting to talk about it. So that'll, that'll be wonderful because hopefully I can, hopefully I can help people uh, put some of it uh, in, into practice. You know, sometimes you read a book and you go, oh, well, that's a good description. Now what do I do? So yeah. I'm hoping I can help people with the, uh, uh, you know, yeah. in, in, with the, 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 what do I do? Cause, yeah, cool. cause yeah. I like to work with people, you know, in groups, the way, the way I, uh, well, did what I meant, met yeah, you. Very good. So, so common knowledge is not so common, and common uh, knowledge is not so is not common practice. So, helping people put it into action—that's that's where it all yeah. hits the ground. Yeah, maybe there there might be some forum like this, or there will be you know a, a program or a something that I that uh, if people uh, are interested, that I can invite them to by the time I. Brilliant. Thank you again. Okay, brilliant. All right, that takes us to our rapid round then, uh, Melinda. So the first question, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? The one thing I know now, oh, wow, that I wish I knew when I was 20. I, I you know, I think it's that um, uh, I can actually, I, I have some capabilities that that aren't the ones that, you know, my my parents thought were my capabilities. You know, if I just, if I just think about, um, you know, my, my first degree is in design, you know, because I, my dad was an architect. He said, you, I, and that's what I wanted to do. And he, he said, you can't do it because women can't be on construction sites, but women can sew, you can do fashion design. Oh, wow. Okay. The world is changing. Um, but, but yeah, okay. Very, very I think interesting. I, had, I think there were some different capabilities that I had, <laughs> yeah. which I finally found an expression for them, you know, in, in another career stage. Because that first one, um, that wasn't the one for me. Yeah, very, very good. And we are glad that you found your purpose and meaning and the gift that you share to the world. So thank you for that. What's your favorite book? Oh. Oh, wow. Well, you know, that's just so hard because I like books. Um, but I think I would have to say, um, I would have to say Sapiens. Um, uh, Noah Yuval Harari's book about the history uh, of mankind. I mean, 
that is, it, it put me, that book really put me on the road to what I wanted to write because he talks about human beings being the only creature that has a capacity to hold a fiction in our heads and believe that fiction when it has no, no objective uh, reality. But the fictions that we hold in our heads drive us yeah. uh, to behave in, in, in ways. It's, it's, it's really what the, the, the myths that I talk about in the book, those are, those are fictions people hold in their head. And when that story gets violated, it's a problem. Oh, wow. So, okay, we're going to start a whole new podcast interview now because that is so interesting that the stories that we tell ourselves about us and how powerful that can impact what we then believe and then go and do. Oh, wow. That's really powerful. What's your favorite quote, Melinda? Oh, um, uh, that's a toss up. Um, There's a fantastic one. about change. It's a bit too long. So I'll, 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 I'll give you the other one. Cause I'm not, I'm not really sure who said this. I, I, I think um, some people attribute it to Einstein, but I'm not really, not really sure. Um, some of the things you can count don't count. And some of the things you can't count really do count. Oh yeah. I like that. I think it might've been Einstein. I'm going to look it up and I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, that's a wonderful one. And I've heard that one before, but not for a long time. So thank you for bringing that back to my, my, my frontal memory. So yeah, very good. Finally, how do people get in contact with you, Melinda, if they want to know more about you, about Streamwise, about your work? Okay, well, I, I, have, a, I have a new website that's just me, my name, melindamuth.com. Uh, so you can go there, you can see things about me. I'm trying to, you know, put... Um, you know, the work that I'm doing uh, there. And, uh, And you can find me on LinkedIn. Very good. All right. And we'll put those links in the show notes as well again, Melinda. Thank you again so much. Thank you for today. This has been wonderful. I've just adored having the opportunity to explore this with you, to listen to you. And then for, for the opportunity to share some of my thoughts and get your reflections on those. This has just been such a wonderful uh, opportunity and I've learned so much from today and I know our audience will as well. I get to once again thank you publicly for the impact you've had on my life. I can't, uh, I can't overstate that. It's, it's been such an impact, that program that I went on uh, with you, what is now 13 years ago, believe it or not. But 13 years ago, we went on that and it started a whole journey that led to where I am today and I'll be eternally thankful to you and everyone else that was on that program, but specifically you, because you were the, you were the head facilitator and, and really navigated our cohort through an, an amazing transformative program. So thank you for today and thank you always for what you've done for me in my life. Thank you, Mick. It was so wonderful to have this opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, you know, it, it means the world to me to hear that uh, feedback from you. But can I just say, you know, when you work with good raw material, you look good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Again. <laughs> You're a star, Mick. All right. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by my new book, You're a Leader, Now What? The Proven Path to High Performance Leadership. 
The book contains many of the great lessons that we've learned together here on the Leadership Project podcast, together with lessons that I've collected over my 30-year career as a leader. The book is aimed towards first-time leaders, but really there's something in there for everyone. If you would like to show your appreciation for this show, we would greatly appreciate if you were able to go and get your copy of the book on Amazon as either an ebook or a paperback, and if you could leave us an honest review on Amazon. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Project podcast at mixbeers.com. A big call out to Faris Sadek for his sound design and editing of our audio and video content, and to the whole team at TLP. Joanne goes on, Gerald Calabo, Rika Vadanes, and my wonderful supportive wife, Say Spears, who is also our operations manager. This show would simply not be possible without you. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. You can catch the video podcast and our video of the week at the Leadership Project YouTube channel. And you can join the conversation at the Leadership Project Facebook community group. We look forward to bringing you more great content and interviews next week as we continue to learn together and lead together. In the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and always remember to challenge the status quo. listening to the leadership project at mixbeers.com a huge call out to faris sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at tlp joanne goes on gerald calabo and my amazing wife say spears i could not do this show without you don't forget to subscribe to the leadership project youtube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week and you can follow us on social particularly on linkedin facebook and instagram now in the meantime please do take care look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together